My name's Stephen. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at almost the entire chapter. Don't let that freak you out. I will move as quickly as need be. Uh, We need to see all of the different encounters and interactions that happen in this chapter to get a full grasp uh, of what God's uh, trying to teach us this morning. We're in a series called Experience Redemption, uh, where we do this every year as a reminder to us uh, on the type of church that we feel like God has called us to be uh, and who he's called us to be in our city uniquely. Uh, There's great churches all around our city, and and we think God has called us to be what he's called us to be, not anyone else. Uh, That way, an entire city can be reached with the gospel. And so over the last few weeks, we've been laying out uh, these values, and it starts with with a vision that's this. We want to be the the church that Jesus came to plant. Now, in order to do that, we have to have the mission uh, that Jesus came to give, which he gave us in Matthew 28. We say it like this, the RCC family exists to go and make disciples through biblical teaching and meaningful worship. Now, underneath that, then we have values to remind us of who we are. We looked at the first one two weeks ago. It's this, that this is God's church, that he's the head of it. Not a man, not a group of men or women, uh, but he and he alone, Jesus is the head of his church. Because of that, church should be simple but meaningful. The way we say that, we say it should be simple and meaningful, what we mean is uh, the point of our gathering is to proclaim Jesus and to connect people into vibrant relationships with Christ and with each other. We see that all throughout the book of Acts and then into the, uh, the epistles. Now, the third value today is we have to be uh, the church that reaches the people that Jesus came to reach. So we're going to look at this morning on how the gospel goes out and to whom it goes out, how and to whom. And uh, we say it around here like this, everyone, everyone is invited to experience redemption redemption in Christ. And so we'll see that in the book of Acts this morning. If you could imagine for a moment, uh, ancient Greek night or night in, in Greece. I don't know if you can imagine that or not, because you've probably never been there. But uh, imagine uh, a, a man, an everyday man, kind of common man, maybe like lower middle class, uh, wakes up and uh, he works the night shift, and so he goes out into the, uh, the room that they have, and his wife's making dinner. It's kind of that iconic movie scene, and his wife's making dinner, and his two kids are playing, and uh, he smiles at the kids, plays with them a little bit, gives his wife a kiss, and walks out into the night to head to work as a, uh, as a jailer. And uh, as he's doing it, you know, the scene made it look like the kids are happy, and his wife is happy, and uh, he looks kind of happy, but he's carrying a burden. And as he's walking to work, he looks up into the night sky and says, God, or gods, however many of you there are, um, if you can help, need help. And he continues on his walk to work, and he gets to work that night. Acts chapter 16 starts like this. It says, and they, they is Paul and Silas and the rest of his travel companions, um, if you're not familiar with who Paul is, he's uh, one of the most uh, common uh, characters in the New Testament. I said character, he's a real person. Um, outside of Jesus, Paul is probably the most prolific in the New Testament, wrote uh, a lot of it. And uh, Paul, his name used to be Saul. And so really, this story doesn't start here. It starts seven chapters earlier. And if you ask the question, well, how does the gospel spread? The first answer to that question is through the sovereign hand of God. 
That's how the gospel spreads, through the sovereign hand of God. And in Acts chapter 7 and 8, we see this um, uh, character, Saul, come into play, and he has this radical experience with God, uh, this religious man who wants to stop the message of the gospel from going out. He's actually killing or persecuting Christians, and then Jesus grabs a hold of his heart in very dramatic fashion. Then he becomes a prolific church planter. And in, uh, those churches that he's planting, they're going very well. And so we pick that story up in Acts chapter 16. It says, and they went through the region of, however you say that, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. It means that Paul and his companions thought, let's go to Asia. And they had a good game plan. We're going to go to Asia, uh, and we're going to see the gospel spread there, and we're going to take over the east, and, and the gospel's going to move. Let's go there. It seems like the right plan to us. Whenever it comes to, to church planting or it comes to gospel spreading, we can have ideas that we think this is the right idea. This is the right man-made idea. What we're going to see throughout this entire chapter, though, is that God's sovereign plan doesn't always make sense with our ideas. So they went through this region, and the Holy Spirit's like, nope, you're not going to get in there. And we don't know how he did that. Maybe he just spoke it to them. Maybe there was government interference or military interference or traveling plans that went wrong, or who knows? But God stops them. So then they had come up to Misa, and they attempted to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit says, nope, we're not going to let you do that. Oh, for two. Paul has ideas of where he thinks the gospel should be spread next. But through the sovereign hand of God, through his Holy Spirit, using probably practical means, right, like a broken down ship or a storm or whatever it might be, he says, no, you're not going there. I got a better plan for you. By the way, that, that means that if we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant, uh, then we have to um, also acknowledge then that God um, plants his churches where he wants, when he wants, and with whom he wants. And if we want to be the church that Jesus can plant, then, then we need to fall under that as well. So they say, well, okay, what do we do next? Well, they passed by Mysa, and then they went down to Troas. And here's what happens. A vision appears to Paul in the night. And so Paul, conjecturing a bit, but uh, they've tried to go to two places. They haven't been able to get there. Uh, they think they're doing the will of God, which they are doing the will of God. And uh, there may be a slight frustration or maybe just uh, a bit of confusion on, God, what do you want us to do? If things are going so well. We had this plan. We were going to take over all of Asia. We had a map. We put little you know, things all over it on what we were going to take. What next? And then God appears. God appears, and he gives him a vision. By the way, any vision that's spoken about in church has to be God's vision, not a man's vision. This vision was given by God. So a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come to Macedonia and help us. Help us. That's it. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they see the vision, and they know this is the vision that God has given us. It's the vision of the church that he wants us to plant and where he wants us to plant it and who he wants us to reach when we plant it. And so God called, so we're going to move, which means, by the way, that we should have that. And when God calls, we move. When we see what God is doing, when we see what he's trying to show us, we move to respond to that. And so they go. And they hop in their, uh, their boats, and they, and they get on and say, we're going to go. Uh, and what we're going to see here, by the way, historically, 
Uh, it's not going to say that in here, but, but if we have, you know, uh, we can look back and, and know that this is when the gospel came to Europe. Think about that. This is when the gospel came to Europe. We think of Europe now as a Christian nation, right, or post-Christian nation, and uh, for centuries, right, it was, it was pagan, highly pagan. And this is when the gospel breaks into that continent, right here. So how does God do it? So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which if you've heard of the book uh, Philippians, now you're going to see how that church actually got started. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And so they get on their boat and they hop in and they're going to take the gospel to Europe, not Asia, through God's sovereign hand. And so they arrive in Europe and they don't go to Athens, the capital city, the city of um, influence, the city of um, high philosophical thought, the city where ideas came from. I mean, if you thought we've got something that's going to transform the world, Where should we go? Go to Athens, right? Debate with the the greatest minds maybe in history and and, and present the gospel there. But that's not God's plan. God says, no, go to this place. Now, they go to a leading city in Macedonia, which isn't, uh, I mean, it's not Athens. So they go down there and they they hide in there. And look how, how the Holy Spirit and God's plan brings the gospel to Europe. Look how he does it. So they're in Macedonia, in Philippi. We remained in this city some days. They get there, they're kind of looking around, surveying the land. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. As one commentator pointed out this week as I was studying, there had been no women's live movement yet. And if you had an idea of how you're going to bring the gospel to Europe, starting with a group of obscure women in an obscure part of Greece is probably not how you would do it. But this is how God does it. The first convert, the first convert in Europe by name is a religious, rich woman named Lydia. This is how he begins. How God begins things and how we would think to begin things are often quite different. And so they go out there, and there's this little prayer meeting going on down by the river, right? Don't despise small beginnings. Paul walks in, there's a group of women, and they're just praying, and he shows up, and he's going to proclaim the name of Jesus and the gospel for the first time in this continent. And there's this woman named Lydia, and this is what we hear about her. She's from Thyatra. She's a seller of purple goods. She's a worshiper of God. She's a Jew. And look what happens. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who brings salvation, by the way? God does. And so Paul shows up and he probably begins a conversation with her. And as he's talking to her, he finds out, well, you know, you're Jewish and you're sitting there and you're a worshiper of God. And uh, I was that too once. I was religious, just like you. I was a worshiper of God, just like you, but I was missing something. Let me tell you about it. And he probably just told her his story. And this is when I met Jesus. And I met Jesus, and it changed everything. I was no longer just a worshiper of God. I was a lover of Jesus. My heart was transformed. It was open. Lydia experiences redemption. Now, let's pause. Who's Lydia? Uh, Well, first... She's a woman. 
right? Contrary to what you would think about, this is how we should start a movement in a new place in that time period. Uh, She's religious. This is a reminder to us that religious people need the gospel. That there are probably dozens of people in your life who are religious, who are moral, who look good, who are clean. And they're missing the most important thing, just like Lydia. And there's a temptation, friends, to look in. And to boot, she's rich, right? And why is that we believe? Well, she's rich. Why does she need God? Well, she has everything. Why would she need this? By the way, you know why we believe that sometimes? Um, Because we have an own idol in our own heart that thinks if I had those things, I'd be okay. Which is a lesson to us. Like, whoa, whoa, don't make that my God. The rich, the religious, they need the gospel too. They need redemption. I mean, imagine this scene. Paul walks in and he sees a bunch of, uh, at least one wealthy woman praying to God. What would we do in this scene? Would we preach the gospel or would we say, ah, oh, they must be okay. They must be all right. They're good. They're clean. They're, they're this. No, no, no. They need redemption. They need the gospel. And perhaps there's a religious person in your life who's just waiting for the gospel. Perhaps there's a, um, uh, somebody who's, whose life, they got it all together. They must be fine. No, they need the gospel. They need the gospel. And so Paul preaches the gospel to this wealthy religious woman, and she experiences the gospel. Now, look at this from a church planning perspective, okay? Um, Paul showed up. He's on a brand new continent. He, he sees, now Paul always started with religious people. I, I brought that last week. Whenever he started his movements, he always started with the religious, not the irreligious. And so he shows up, and man, he wins the church planning jackpot, okay? This rich woman is like, I'm in. In fact, I'm in so much. Why don't you come to my house? And you can run your ministry out of my mansion. I mean, this is a church planning win. And, and I don't know Paul's way of thinking, so I can't speak this into him, but I would imagine for anyone else there would be a temptation to think, I just won the jackpot. Let's follow this woman back to her nice neighborhood. And we'll play the network marketing like Tupperware game right? She'll invite her friends over. I'll preach the gospel to all of them. They'll all convert because Lydia's queen bee, right? And not Beyonce. And, and then, man, look at this church we have. All the money. All the money in Philippi. Well, we'll be able to build a nice building. It'll be amazing. Think how nice it'll be. How clean it'll be. But God had different plans. See, the bead of the church that Jesus came to plant, it can't just be a church of one type. It can't just be a, 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 ter- a type of a one class or, or, or one small segment of society. And so Paul and the gang, they, they follow Lydia, right? And we find out later that they do make her house like their camp. And so they follow her uh, uh, back over to church. Why? Because God loves the religious and the rich. He does. And he wanted them to experience redemption. But along the way, look what happens. 
So as we were going to the place of prayer, uh, which the assumption is that they were, um, they come to my house and stay, right? So they went to Lydia's house, they stayed there, and then they were going back probably on another Sabbath day to go back to pray. And along the path, along the path, and uh, maybe your mind goes, well, I wonder how Lydia ended up there. And 20 years ago, I wonder if God gave her an idea to build a business, because if she built the business, then she could live in that part of town. And then when they were living in that part of town, they would have to walk this way to get to the place of prayer. Sovereign hand of God. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. This girl isn't even given a name. She's just called slave girl. She's not a have. She's not upper society. No one's going to miss her. No church planner goes, if I just get slave girl, this thing's going to blow up. She's just a slave girl. And to boot, she, she has a spirit of divination. And she was used. I mean, in essence, prostituted out, not for her body, but for her, her, her demonic spirit. I was traveling some time ago, and I was down at a church in the south, like the backwoods. I was staying in, uh, in a pretty, you know, remote place. And I went into this church, and um, the preacher got up to preach, and he started off by this, like this. He said, let me tell you about last night's revival. And that's when you know you're in the South. And he goes, let me tell you about last night's revival. There was this woman there, or this little girl. And this little girl, her mom, her mom was the type of mom you don't want coming to church. Did you not? This is how he started. And then he went in and talked about the little girl. You know who that little girl was, or that, that mom was at that church? She's the slave girl right here. The type that you would never say, let's start the movement with her. And if you continue to read the story, you're going to see that Paul's going to cast the demon out and she's going to experience redemption. Why? Because God loves the have-nots as much as he loves the haves. Because the church is for the have-nots as much as it is for the haves. Because God is going to put people in your path that there might be a, a worldly pressure or a, uh, um, a worldly idea to look at yourself as a And the gospel would call us to look in and to see them and to give them a name when they have no name. And that name is Jesus, that you are now in Christ. And so this have not, this forgotten girl, this girl who's not given a name is redeemed. Now look at the story. Now Paul and his gang are walking through. I mean, this is like, something out of a, a, a weird movie scene, right? Where, where God's just putting the weirdest group of, uh, of people together, okay? Like, if you've seen Ocean's Eleven, when they all come together, like, they're all like, it's Brad Pitt and George Clooney, for goodness sake, right? Like, they're the coolest people in the world coming together. Here now, you've got this rich woman on one side and all of her little gang, and now you've got this slave girl coming, and they're all walking with Paul. And you could look in at that little prayer meeting and think, and this is how the gospel took over the Roman Empire, are you kidding me? She's baptized. Lydia was, and this woman, is, the demon is cast out, and the gospel is on the move. Oh, but look what happens in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because the demon had been cast out, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. 
Not true, but they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Also not true. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And so a jailer shows up to work, works the night shift. His kids are at home, kissed his wife goodbye. And some high profile prisoners are put under his watch. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now, it looks like the gospel movement through Europe is on pause, thrown into prison. I wonder what Lydia and and the slave girl and the gang of people, I wonder what they're doing and what they're thinking. There's so much in this text. I want to try and pull it out for us. The first is this. If we want everyone to experience redemption, part of that will be surrendering our own rights. You're going to see later that Paul and Silas, the moment that they were attacked and about to be put into prison, could have claimed their Roman citizenship and stopped it. And sometimes Christians, we love our rights more than we love the lost. And so what Paul and Silas do is they don't claim their rights right then. Instead, they allow themselves to be beaten. They allow themselves to be thrown into prison in what should be a very dark hour. Your darkest hour might be your greatest hour to proclaim the gospel. In this moment, this is a dark hour. They're thrown into prison. And as they're in there, by the way, this should be true of us in our darkest hours, in our darkest moments. They were doing two things. They were praying and they were praising. And in your darkest hour, it says here that in prison, people were listening. And in your darkest hour, our response should be to pray fervently and to praise loudly. Because God's got a plan in this. The prisoners were listening in as Paul and Silas had surrendered their rights and as they're sitting in prison and as they're waiting, waiting to see what God will do. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. This is a miracle, by the way, okay? It can't be called anything else. Suddenly there was a great miracle so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now here's where we're going to see that the beating that, and I say like spiritual beating, that God has put Paul through over the last eight chapters and over the, the years of his life made him mature enough in this moment to realize something, that the miracle wasn't even for him. So oftentimes in our darkest moments, we see the miracle, and we think, oh, this must be my way out. This must be my, but Paul was mature enough to realize the miracle wasn't for him because all of their bonds and are unfastened and they're free. It's like they could go up. And look what happens when the jailer woke. When the jailer, the everyday man, the lower middle class man, when he woke up, the guy who had shown up to work that day, who had kissed his wife and his kids goodbye, When he wakes up and saw that the prison doors were open, look what he does. He drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Think about this. And this guy thought to himself, it is better right now that I kill myself and leave my wife a widow and my kids fatherless than to face what I have to face. It's better that I kill myself 
and face that. And so he's about to do it. And Paul, by the way, if Paul had taken the easy way out and had run, then this man would have never heard the voice of God calling through in his most desperate moment. It is a reminder to us that when we stay faithful in the dark moments, that God can give us opportunities to speak his redemption out in them. But Paul cried with with a loud voice. It's like you see the scene of the jailers over there, and he walks down, and and he's about, and Paul shows up, and he says, do not harm yourself. We're, We're all here. Don't do it. We're here. This is a sermon for another day, by the way. But let me just bring this home real quick for those of us in our church, okay? That when you're at a dark moment, when you feel like life has overcome you, and whether it's thoughts of suicide or negativity or depression or isolation or running away, let me speak as Paul spoke. Don't. We, Christ, and your church are here for you. Don't do that, okay? We're here in the dark moment. He cries it out. And the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in and trembling with fear. He's the one with the sword. (laughs) Trembling with fear, he falls down. Falls to the ground in front of Paul and Silas. I wonder if Paul looked at him and said, have I got a story for you? Have I got a story for you, man? See, a bunch of years ago, uh, by the way, a jailer, forgotten jailer who also doesn't have a name. If you ever thought redemption wasn't for you, let me just tell you a little story. Eight years ago, or eight chapters ago, uh, uh, and some years ago, I was persecuting Christians, and, uh, and I was killing them, and, uh, and then God saved me, and then I started planting churches, and we had this idea that we were going to go into Asia, and we were going to take over Asia for the gospel, and the Holy Spirit kept telling us, no, 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 no. And then all of a sudden, I saw this man crying out, help me, help me, help us. And so we responded to it. And we worked our way all the way through Europe and uh, all the way through Greece. And we landed in Philippi. And God is smart. And he knew that Paul would do what Paul always does, which he starts with the religious people. And so through the sovereign hand of God, he brought Paul to a riverside where there were some women praying. And he preached the gospel. And this rich religious woman embraces the gospel and says, come in my house and stay because God knew that she lived over there. And so they would go there and they would stay there. And then the next Sunday they would go out and they would go back to pray because that's where it all began. So let's go back and pray. And as they were doing that, because they were walking that route, because Lydia lived there, they would see the slave girl who was in that place because that's where all the money was, where the gospel or where, I'm sorry, where people could pay to have this slave girl tell them their fortunes. And so they'd walk down that path and they would see that slave girl and they'd cast out the demon from the slave girl and she would experience redemption and her owners would get angry so that they would throw him in jail on that night when that guy was working. And then a miracle would come and Paul and Silas would be mature enough to know we don't run right now, we stay. 
And in the moment when this guy needed it most, they would proclaim the gospel and he and his family and his wife, kids would all experience redemption. That is how the gospel moves in the sovereign plan of God. A rich religious woman, a poor, no-named slave girl, and a middle-class guy in his family. Everyone is invited to experience redemption. means if we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant, we have to reach the people that Jesus calls us to reach. And that the sovereign hand of God over your life, who you see and where you go and who you live by and who you meet and what just seems like happenstance, could be God's sovereign hand of using you to help people experience redemption. And to be the church that Jesus came to plant, that means that we have to reflect the people that Jesus came to reach. So as you go, go with the same mindset Paul did. And you're not just out and about. You're carrying redemption with you as you go. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk specifically what the scripture says about proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel with people around us. Let's pray.